Looking to take your career or business to the next level? The CLIMB Center for Advancement offers fast, specialized training to help with professional, team, business, or personal goals. Backed by the experience and size of PCC. Learn more at pcc.edu slash CLIMB. The sharing economy, a smart, economical, win-win method of sharing goods and services. Sounds great, right? But it's a little more complicated than that. Since the term was coined, companies have been trying to fit into the sharing economy tent and have those good vibes rub off. Everything from Airbnb-style companies to community repair shops. Welcome to Biz 503. Today's topic is the sharing economy. I'm Rebecca Webb, Portland Radio Project founder, here with Perry Gruber of Copiosis, a self-proclaimed economic innovator. And I'm delighted to have you hosting with me today, Perry. Uh, Before we bring in guests, though, I want you to tell us about Copiosis. What exactly is it? Sure. Copiosis is a brand new innovation created to replace money, markets, and government with a new global sharing gift economy. Now, that sounds good, but replace money, come again? (laughs) What do you mean? Yeah, so money markets and government have been tremendous with innovations that have provided all kinds of wealth all around the world. We've seen wealth rise over the centuries as a result of money markets and government. But what comes with all of that prosperity are also some problems, both politically, socially, and economically, that I think we're all familiar with. (laughs) And so what Copiosis does is it retains all of the wealth-generating functions of those three entities and eliminates all of the negative baggage that comes with it. How? How does it do that? Yeah, so from the business perspective, what it does is it provides businesses with an environment where it it incurs none of the costs of operation. So all the costs a company would would normally incur, such as labor costs, the expenses for inputs, and uh, other operating costs are eliminated in favor of the people who support those businesses with capital goods providing those things to the business at no cost. In return for that gift to the businesses, those people receive the reward that we've created for creating the gift for the businesses. So that eliminates the cost between the business and the supplier. And then on the, the business to consumer end, the businesses provide their products and services to the consumers at no cost to the consumers. And all of this is facilitated by an innovation we call net benefit reward. In capitalism, you have money that makes these transactions happen. In copiosis, we have this thing called net benefit reward. Any reason to think that it would work? I mean, it sounds theoretical. It sounds theoretical, but it's not. We have actually a well-thought-out transition plan that people are calling one of the most detailed and specific transition plans available. Really? Yes, and it's proving to be very effective in our demonstration projects that we have in, we have one in Northern California in a city called Chico and another here in Portland. And then we have, we do have eight, but I may not get them all off the top of my head. So there's there's a demonstration project launching in Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, uh, San Antonio, Texas, Taos, New Mexico. And then on the international scope, we have one in Berlin, Spain, Brussels, Peru, and Osaka, Japan. There are others. I just can't remember them off the top of my head. But how come so many in Texas? It's a really good question. I think it's because of the independent spirit down there. It's funny because I know we're going to be talking about socialism in regards to the sharing economy, but it's interesting that the leader of the demonstration project launching in Houston wants to organize his demonstration project around the tenants of Ayn Rand. And so... (laughs) 
it's interesting <laughs> that this guy wants to do this totally non or this totally seemingly socialist innovation around tenants that have nothing to that do are with socialism. kind of at the extreme exactly. other end of the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. well, very interesting. Let us welcome our first guest now, Stephen Green. He's community director at Elevate Capital and founder treasurer at Oregon Public House. We've seen you before. Great to have you back, Stephen. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad yeah. to be here. Uh, what about Oregon Public House? Tell us what it is and why it was needed. So the Oregon Public House is the nation's first nonprofit brew pub. It was an idea of, of Ryan Sari, a neighbor of mine, a few years ago. We were in the doldrums of the, the down part of the recession, and we were talking about some of the realities of being in a recession, and one of those realities is people drink more beer. <laughs> uh, and Portland has more breweries uh, than any other city in the country. One of the other realities is really applicable to Portland in that the city has more nonprofits per capita than any other city in the country. People give less to charity. And so Ryan joked and said, well, you know, if Portland had a baby, it'd be a nonprofit brew pub. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize the giving was quite so low, though. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of the things in in a recession when you're a company or even a personal household, one of the first things you you chop off the block is is giving to others. Sure. You know, you're trying to pay for food, you're trying to pay mm-hmm. for school, you're trying to, you know, pay for the things that keep you keep you alive and, and so giving to others is often like taken off the plate. So we exist to be a fundraising department for area nonprofits that are doing the work that's needed, whether the recession is going or whether it's great times in the market. And so so far in the in the past two years that we've been open, we've been able to give almost a hundred thousand dollars to local charities. Wow. Great. How does it work exactly? So the slogan's eat, drink, give. So you go in, it's like any other brew pub, you pick what you're gonna eat. You pick from our menu of something to drink as well. And then we have a third menu that no other restaurant has, and that's of six local area nonprofits. And so you, you pick one of each, and then at the end of each month, we tally up the votes, all the people that have come into the, the restaurant. And if Friends of Trees got 30% of the votes, they get 30% of our profits for that month. That's fantastic. Yeah. What about the people who are working there? I mean, are they getting paid? We actually have a, a group of employees. Right now, I think we're sitting right around eight employees that, that all you know, get paid as you would with any any other business. We also have a list of over 500 volunteers. So mm-hmm. on any given night, you'll see people from different uh, area nonprofits volunteering, grabbing plates, taking dishes, serving people water, or you'll even see my kids working in there um, mm-hmm. doing the same thing and giving back and giving up their time. Cool. Yeah, I can't share that Portland Radio Project is actually starting a conversation with you about having a night, <laughs> a night there and there participating uh, with that. But let's get back to the, the focus. So how does Oregon public house fit with the concept of the sharing economy? Where does it fit in? So I think the idea, it's a very Portland thing to be able to say, you know, I want to I want to do good. I think about Dan Pink's book called Drive, and he talks about the, the new economy and that um, what drives people isn't money and what promotes innovation in companies isn't, you know, people's paychecks. It's purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And so I, I think, you know, part of the, the Portland mystique is really being able to get in touch with, you know, having some sort of purpose and something bigger than just a paycheck or, or just checking a box. And so I think we're able to do that at the pub and that really touches folk. They're able to, you know, not only connect and have a great meal, but also hear about some amazing nonprofits that are doing amazing work here in Portland. Curious, Stephen, if, if you've seen, like compared to other pubs in, in the city, if you've seen an increase 
or a, a delta between the number of people that service your facility versus going to another place. Do you see the advantage right. occurring there? We've got our own niche and we're in Woodlawn, one of the great neighborhoods in this town. And we do have a couple other brew pubs that are in the area. We service families. We have a kid's play area and a brew pub for crying out loud. And so for us, we've seen a consistent rise in the business that we've had there as, as the neighborhood has, has grown. But we also see people come from all over the country just to come have dinner there. I talked with a couple that was on date night a few months ago and they were on date night from San Francisco. They wow. literally flew in to stay at an Airbnb uh, in the neighborhood and then go have dinner at our pub. And then they were going back home the next day. How cool is that? Yeah. It's about how the business end of that is going. We're going to have several sharing organizations come in and talk about the differences between, you know, the idea of just sort of having that soft sharing network versus monetizing it. If you were not giving all that money to those nonprofits, how would you be doing as far as profitability? We would break even. So we, we give, you know, we, we take care of all of our bills. We pay our lease. We pay for our food. We pay our employees. And then the remaining amount, the profit that would typically go to an ownership team. Instead, we forego that as the, the founders and the board, and we give that to the charities. And about what amount is that currently? So it's about 8 to 10% of our of our revenues. It works out to be our profit, which in the restaurant industry is, is, is doing really, really, yeah, good. really good. career or business to the next level, the CLIMB Center for Advancement offers fast, specialized training to help with professional, team, business, or personal goals, backed by the experience and size of PCC. Learn more at pcc.edu slash CLIMB. We're talking about the sharing economy, an economic model based on peer-to-peer -peer sharing. It's been hailed as a savvy way of getting access to things without worrying about ownership of things. And now we're looking at the foundation of the sharing economy, community. Every organization that wants to be part of the sharing economy needs people to pitch in and share, rent, borrow, or buy. So we're welcoming now uh, to the table several guests who will tell us why they got into the business this way and uh, what their experience is in gathering communities together. We welcome Rick Reynolds, founder of Share Oregon. Thank you for having me. Jocelyn Furbush, co-founder and board chair of Kitchen Share Northeast. Hello, thank you. Hi, welcome. And then Liz Knudsen, the marketing manager of Know Thy Food Co-op. Good afternoon. And then finally, but not least, Zoya Kumar, executive director of Portland Community Tool Bank. Hello, everybody. Hi, thanks for joining us. So, Rick, tell us about Share Oregon. Happy to. So, Share Oregon or ShareOregon.com is a website for sharing all the best things in Oregon. I'm constantly inspired by all of the fun things to do out in the state, inspiring things, whether they're things out in nature or just educational events. And I wanted an easy way to make it possible to find those things and to post them. If you were somebody who is maybe a, a small business tour guide or a whitewater rafting expert or a native plant expert or whatever it is, they can connect with people who are interested in those. It's like a network. Yeah. Is yes. That, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so, it's, it's a perfect example of a sharing economy in the sense that you depend on users to contribute 
distribute the content that fills up the property that you own, correct? Exactly right. It's a true community effort. Folks just go to the site and they can add a post and it goes up live. And as long as it's legal and people really think it deserves to be on a list of the best things in Oregon, it's great for me. <laughs> Is there some sort of a curation process that either through an algorithm or, or manually that allows the, the most popular things to float to the top? Or how, how does that deal with? Right now, it's really just people deciding, you know, is this something that they think deserves to be on, on the list of the best? Or maybe they know somebody who they recommend that they should post their things, like Dessert Theater came up recently, and uh, just other really neat events, and that was just like word of mouth, people saying, hey, you should you should put this out. Apart from that, it's just the, the latest things that are posted are up at the top of the gallery, and then you can just search in different categories, or just using it, type and search. How did you get into that, Rick? What what inspired it? So there are a lot of different things. Uh, one is my wife and I uh, host on Airbnb, and we really enjoy that experience. And uh, just meeting people from all over the world and seeing how well this, this system works, I started thinking, you know, what else should we really be sharing this way? Another part of it was I helped uh, start a farmer's market in our neighborhood which last na- year. Which neighborhood and, is that? Uh, that's Woodlawn neighborhood. I actually oh. uh, live right near uh, Stephen. So uh, <laughs> I was happy to get the Oregon Public House. And then we got our, our farmer's market nice. going. And that was inspiring. And just seeing that kind of community effort and the market needed to help get the word out. And all these other interesting organizations needed help getting the word out. I, I serve on the board of the Environmental Education Association of Oregon. And so a lot of the folks who posted initially were environmental education type providers that I just wanted to help get the word out about their dream studies or their retreats out in nature where you could learn and and have fun at the same time. So from there, it's grown to arts organizations and lots of other things. And I care about all that and history and the rest. And so it's just fun to see it grow with other things people are passionate about. It's, It's interesting. You know, people are passionate about these kinds of things. They want to share these things. And then there are people like you who create kind of the mechanism through which that sharing can occur. This is like a hallmark of the sharing economy. I'd like to, if you don't mind, bring in Jocelyn and ask her about Kitchen Share Northwest. Do you have a similar circumstance where you have people contributing in some way to the production of what you guys do there? Absolutely. Kitchen Share is all volunteers and we have a network of two libraries, one in Southeast and one in Northeast. I'm involved in the Northeast Library. We have 195 members. We've been around for two years. The Southeast Library started a year before in 2012. And it's all based on people contributing used kitchen items that they have that they no longer need or that they want to be a resource for the community. It's a great resource for things that you don't use very often or larger bulky items you don't want to have space for or something maybe you want to try out before you buy it. So we have gotten most of our items through donations and then occasionally we raise some money to be able to purchase items that people want to use. Are you handing off those items to people who want them or is it more like checking it out like a library? Checking it out like a library, yeah. It's a kitchen tool lending library. I see. And is this something that where the vision is to eventually pay any of these people or are you not thinking about that? You want it to remain just volunteer bartering? Our focus is on the volunteer yeah. sharing piece of it. Yeah. So there's, you know, it doesn't make sense for everyone to have one of every of these items. So of it's course. A, this collective resource that we can pool together and yeah, it's a great idea. No employees, yeah. though, all no, volunteers. All volunteers, yeah. It, it's really a fascinating implementation of the sharing model. I mean, I've heard 
heard tool libraries, and we're going to talk with someone in a second here about that, but I've also heard seed libraries are the same way. I have never heard of ki- kitchenware. Can I say kitchenware? Sure. Kitchen implements? Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you have in your library? Are we talking about spatulas and, and uh, tongs? Or are we talking about colophon pots? Mostly some of the larger items. We have a, quite a wide variety, but in our, our top 10, the ones that have the highest loans, all four of our dehydrators are in that top 10. Mm. So those are the mm. most popular. Both of our ice cream makers are in there. Mm. We also have reusable dinner plates and serving so people can have events that are more sustainable. Do you run across any attention about the quality of these items or is there a screening process so that you make sure if somebody gets the ice cream maker it really <laughs> works? Yeah, we do. I mean, if there's all kinds of things that come in the door, some, some are better than others, but we do test things and make sure that they at least plug in and turn on um, and all the equipment is kind of at your own risk. We ask people that when they sign up as members, they're agreeing that they know how to use the equipment, that they'll return it in clean condition. How's that going? For the most part, people respond really well. They understand that it's a collective effort that, you know, if you don't return it clean, you're, you know, you want your stuff when you borrow it to be clean. Shall we go to Know Thy Food? Yeah, let's talk with Liz. So Liz Knutson, welcome. You are with Know Thy Food. This is over on Southeast Milwaukee, and it's also the Warehouse Cafe, right? Yeah, so we have an interesting business model. Under the umbrella of Know Thy Food Cooperative, we have a cafe, a market, and a farm direct food buying club. So all of those mechanisms work together under one business. Tell us about how they intersect. Sure. So a lot of times we have food available in the cafe that we sell in the market and in the food buying club. And it's a nice flow because you get to see how to cook the food in the cafe, how it can be prepared in interesting and beautiful ways, and for it to be super nutrient dense as well. The market, you get to, if you don't want to buy a whole flat of eggs, for example, you can buy six or you can buy a dozen to see how you like them before you commit to joining the food buying club. Which, you, which is predominantly buying food in bulk. Where does the food come from? Oh, we have farmers and vendors from all over the Portland metro area, vendors that just produce amazing food from all over Oregon. The other models, it, it sounds as though people are contributing their excess wares for free so that people can use them because otherwise they'd be sitting in their kitchen or, or what have you, or it'd just be an idea that no one would know about. With regard to this model, do the farmers provide the food for free? They don't provide the food for free. We always ask the farmers to give us a price that's sustainable for them. We never ask them to go below a price that doesn't allow them their farm to be sustainable. So that's one of the things that I think we do really well is we support the farmers and we ask for prices that are sustainable. And that, that savings gets passed on to the customer because we have a very small markup in the I food see. buying club. Are the customers the same people as the, the club? Or can you have two people, one in the club and one agenda? Yeah, anyone community? can come shop in the market or awesome. eat in the cafe. Customers, yeah, they, they participate in all three aspects or one or, or two. So there's a lot of different ways to be involved in the cooperative. I recommend the turkey tapenade sandwiches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> By the way. Yes, the turkey milk. Tell us about your business model as a cooperative. First of all, are there paid employees? There are paid employees. We have nine employees, uh-huh. a board of directors, and we are working on getting more volunteers in the store as well. Okay. And I'm old enough to remember, you know, the proliferation of co-ops in the late 1970s. And I'm just wondering if this is 
really similar to that. Well, I wasn't around in the 1970s, <laughs> I so I can't exactly <laughs> speak to that. But I know that we have an, a unique perspective because we are originally incorporated as an LLC, and we became a cooperative in November. So we're a pretty young cooperative at the moment. And, and tell us yeah. about those two structures, okay? Because that, that, that was kind of a quick, a trick question. <laughs> well, our the co-op started uh, by Rebecca Anderson. She was just a mom who wanted to feed her kids good food, and she wanted to buy bulk and split the bulk food up with a bunch of other moms in the neighborhood. And the business transformed from there. We got a brick and mortar store about five years ago. And yeah, it's it's taken off. So is it still an LLC? We're a cooperative now. So November. why did you choose to go from the LLC to the cooperative model? Because that was her idea all along was for it to be a community based rather than it be a sole proprietorship, Excellent. have it be the, the sharing economy. Yeah, Excellent. Awesome. And how are you doing? Are the nine employees getting paid pretty well? And We're getting paid pretty fairly. Yeah, we're working on upping the type of pay that we provide for our employees. And that's definitely one of the things that we want to incorporate and push forward. Hey, let me just ask you about the minimum wage that's going to be implemented. Have you guys been talking at your staff about how passage of a minimum wage law will affect nonprofits? We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, but I know that it's, it's pretty definitely new. on everyone's minds. So we talked with Zoya from Portland Community Tool Bank. So I'm really excited to talk with Zoya because we have a, a tool lending library, we call it, in Kenton. And I know there's some others in town. I presume you interact with those folks. Yes, we do, actually. We're different than a tool library. We actually lend to other charitable organizations, and that's all we lend to. So any community group that's doing work will lend to them. We have over 8,000 tools, 140 different tool types, and a 10,000 square foot facility. So it's a little bit different in that way. We just don't lend to homeowners. This is a little bit different than some yeah. of the organizations that we're talking about because you're affiliated with a national organization, right? Right, right. So our national organization is Tool Bank USA, based in Atlanta. And there are nine different tool banks throughout the country. But Portland is the only one tool bank on the West Coast. Really? Why do you think right. that is? You know, it depends on who approaches tool bank USA and request for a tool bank. They do a feasibility study. And then that's really how it rolls out. But there was there's a big explosion of tool banks last year. Actually, four opened up within about nine months. And so now we're just sustaining the tool banks that we have now. But next year, it will go into a growth cycle again. So this is crazy. So so with the tool lending libraries, they have like lawnmowers and rakes and, right. and pruning tools and things like that. What are some of the tools that you have in yours? We also have the same thing. We don't have lawnmowers, but we have have about 100 wheelbarrows. We've got so many drills, corded, cordless. We are starting to accumulate event equipment, which has really been a hot thing because it's so expensive for yeah. charitable organizations to rent. A six-foot table is generally $10 to rent a day. Mm -hmm. From us, it's $1.74. I can see definitely the event coordination equipment being highly valuable for a nonprofit. Why would a nonprofit need like a drill or something like that? <laughs> sure. You know, if you're building playgrounds, if you you are doing any kind of cabinetry work, whatever you may be doing, you'll be you'll need those kind of power tools. Huh. Who are some of your? Do you call them customers or we clients? We call them membership Mem member agencies. Okay. There are clients, Hands On Greater Portland, Solve, Friends of Fairview. So we are starting to build this traction with our local nonprofit sisters, which has been amazing. Huh. We're going to definitely be signing Portland Radio Project up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank get you. That, Thank get you. that hinge fixed. But talk to us about the structure national and locally as far as employees versus volunteers. I expect you have both. We do. We have a board of directors 
uh, a great board of directors. National also has a great board of directors too, and they're from companies all over the U.S. And then locally, you know, how we run, I'm the only employee right now. And so I really depend on our amazing volunteers to come in and help me with this 10,000 square foot facility, quite honestly, and all the tools that we have for tool lending. And the overall national organization is the 501c3? Yes, we're all 501c3s. Excellent. All right. Well, I think this has just been great. One of the aspects that we haven't really touched on so much in this section, though, because this has been more about sharing and helping and lending and borrowing and uh, goodwill. But that is the monetization piece. And that's something that I, I think we want to do. Not only do communities like to gather together and participate in the sharing economy, but some of them look to monetize those systems for sustainability. So we're going to take that subject up after a short break. And thank you so much, Rick, Jocelyn, Liz, and Zoya. Looking to take your career or business to the next level? The CLIMB Center for Advancement offers fast, specialized training to help with professional, team, business, or personal goals, backed by the experience and size of PCC. Learn more at pcc.edu slash CLIMB. Today, we're tackling the subject of the sharing economy, from its role in the economy to how to make it work. And now we're looking at the financial side. As we all know, some players in the sharing economy have scored financial success. So how do you make it work? We have some guests now who figured out how to keep their organizations afloat. We are going to welcome back Zoya Kumar from Portland Community Tool Bank, Rick Reynolds, founder of Share Oregon, and Stephen Green, community director at Elevate Capital and founder treasurer at the Oregon Public House. Thanks for coming back, guys. I have a question for you. One of our listeners on the talk board said, how do all these places find all these volunteers? Which you know, really is a terrific question. Would you like to take that, Zoya? Absolutely. So we use social media quite a bit. We also directly outreach to companies, to organizations, and then that seems to organically grow and people seem to be interested in our tool bank and want to volunteer. We're always looking for more, though. And Rick, do you want to say anything about where you find volunteers? Sure. So a lot of what Share Oregon is about is giving organizations the opportunity to ask for volunteers, too. So we have a number of different, like I said before, environmental education uh, providers who will post for for, for volunteers or just really any nonprofit can get on there and, and recruit. In terms of myself, I do most of the, the volunteer work and it's just a, a really fun project for me to work on Share Oregon. But then I have other people too who are working with me that give me a, a break. My developer friend, I do a lot of the, the web development myself, but there were certain things that I needed to have help with and they're just willing to, to work with me because it's an exciting project that benefits the community. So I think as long as we, we do things that we're passionate about, we feel like really need to be out there in the world, 
then folks are attracted to it and they want to come help. And that's that's a big part of the fun. I can hear your excitement. And another way, if I may say so, is to have it broadcast on the radio. You know, we feature a different local nonprofit here at Portland Radio Project every week. And I'm pretty sure we've featured the tool bank. Let's talk about something that Perry alluded to a little bit earlier. And Stephen, I would like your views on this as an economist, because I think sometimes, you know, we might have a listener out there who's going, well, that's socialism, you know? And and what, what is the difference between the kinds of organizations that we're all voluntarily forming and socialism? The simple answer, and probably the really clear one, is people want to be around other people. And so over the years and the decades, we've created these ways for us to interact and exchange goods and services because generally we live farther apart. Well, now the world's flattened. We have these technologies and tools that we can use that that bridge those gaps. And now we're living closer and closer together. And by and large, people love being around other people. And uh, the motivating thing that happens there is people love giving their time. That's really the, the most finite commodity, commodity that we all have. You can't buy more time of your own. If one of these organizations you know, has really formed for the networking and for the community that you describe. And they think it's important enough to continue, and yet they need the financial piece, you know, to monetize so that they can become sustainable. What have you seen organizations do to make that step? There's this myth out there that nonprofits function differently than for-profit businesses. They don't. They, they file their taxes differently, but they still need to run in the black. And so nonprofits refer to it as a surplus, as opposed to for-profits call it call it a profit. But we have some amazing tools out there. I think about what Rick Tarosi's doing with the Portland Incubator Experiment right now. He's got a crowdfunding campaign going on right now to make the pie cookbook. They're going to give away for free a cookbook that can help startup accelerators put together what what they've been able to do. And so he's got a Kickstarter campaign going on right now. They were looking to raise $314 pie. And after launching four days ago, I think they're up to about $7,000. And, you know, that's all money that's going to be able to go into doing the, the work that he and his partners are doing. And nonprofits be able to qualify for that funding? Currently, worldwide, we have more than 700 platforms that are crowdfunding um, portals. So GoFundMe, Indiegogo, Kickstarter. We have some local platforms like CrowdSupply, which focuses on getting money to makers. But how you file your taxes generally isn't a decision point on whether you can take advantage of those portals or not. So, Stephen, it's clear how your organization, the Brew Pub, generates the surplus that you use to fund nonprofits locally. I'd be interested to hear from Zoya and Rick how you have managed to monetize what you're doing. Is it all contributions, Zoya? Or you know, how- we are locally funded and locally supported here. We do get donations from Stanley Black & Decker that are national supporters. Home Depot, Ames True Temper. So for tools, we absolutely get those kind of donations. But as far as local support, it's all on us to work with our community to raise the funds that we need to sustain. So all on us actually means all on you because you're the board of directors. Oh, the board of directors, the local board of directors. Our Portland board of directors. So the Portland Tool Bank is responsible for our own sustainability. Understood. Okay. So fundraising is what you're. Right. And so really the tool lending only amounts to about five to 7% of our yearly revenue. That's it. Yeah. I could see why tool companies, tool makers, for example, might want to give in-kind donations. But what about the financial contributions? Where have you been successful in getting that kind of support? We have been most successful recently with family foundations locally. So you're talking about grants? 
Exactly. Asking for grants. grants. And do you guys have grant writers on your board? That would be me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are multi-talented, Zoya. <laughs> I clean the restrooms. I do marketing. I do outreach. I do it all happily. Kind of like our volunteers here at PRP. Okay, Stephen, do you want to talk about that? Or Rick, go ahead. You look like you wanted to say something about, you know, getting the, the financial contributions. Sure. I just started Share Oregon last summer. And right now I'm really just focused on growing the community, having everyone in the state using it as a resource. And the goal is down the road to be able to make enough money from it to have it be self-sustaining. And that would be just charging a small percentage for paid things. Somebody takes a great whitewater rafting trip and I could take a small small percentage to support the site. But right now for me, it's just community service, which is something I've always enjoyed. And this is a fun project that I get benefit from that's not monetary, but I make enough from my other business. I have a company called Engaging Press. I create educational resources and websites, and that can just basically bootstrap this one to start up. And so you don't necessarily always need to make money from a venture too, I think. So financing it through a different occupation, yes. different venture. Exactly. Yeah. Would be another and way. looking at it more as a fun, fun project hobby <laughs> instead of trying to make money. It's interesting <laughs> because oftentimes that's the source from which something really comes together and makes it what it can potentially be is when you're having fun as opposed right. to trying to figure out how to monetize the thing. Yeah. And that was very important to me. I didn't want to have to worry about trying to you know, scrape together a few nickels from this. I just wanted it used in mass by lots of people doing creative things. And uh, I draw a lot of energy from that. And other people are giving me great feedback. And that's just a wonderful experience with that. It's interesting because here at Copiosis, we're doing the same kind of thing. And there's there's a there's a perception among some entrepreneurs, I think, where whereby if you don't have the business model nailed down, then you you're in trouble. But but there's a there's a real there's a kind of a magic that occurs when you can do what you're doing just for the fun of it or for the passion that, that got you started in the first place. Because then somewhere down the road something will happen that'll that'll make it all work out, right? And so it, it works out. Exactly. And if you look at the really successful startups, it seems like so many of them were were done that way. They just started they did it Facebook, for example, they weren't trying to make any money from it, but now how many two billion people use it or something and uh, then they can mm-hmm. start monetizing at that point. Yeah, good uh, good point. Stephen, do you want to add anything? Because you mentioned Pi uh, and, and <clears throat> specifics for organizations that really are now turning their sharing operation into uh, something they hope will be sustainable by paying the bills. Definitely. And I think that, you know, there's, there's kind of two ways to, to raise money. There's obviously you get grants coming in, people writing checks, but there's also spending less money. And so I think that's where the sharing economy really comes into play is if you can have those, the, the social capital to be able to, to get a, a discount on a lawyer here, or um, one of the things that we're doing right now, where we're, we're going to be raising some money to get a new um, projector screen inside of our ballroom. And so we're offering up a free night of using our ballroom. So Instead of paying for it, if you're a company, we have about 40 events each month up in our ballroom. And so we're offering to trade our ballroom space, which would typically cost an organization $2,000. And we want to trade that amazing opportunity for a screen that we need desperately. Okay, Um, tell tell us about the screen that you need. Uh, (laughs) Be sure and put that out there. You know, we we, we do a bunch of events, retirement parties, engagement parties, city club, um, Zumba, square dancing, and uh, we really want to be able to offer a full service place. And so we've got some, you know, a great space, some great 
audio and visual stuff, but we need a bigger screen. Yeah, so you want, want something that's mounted there yes, permanently, and you push yes, a button, and it goes, it comes yep. down. It does and the then we need the and means expensive. Yes. Okay, so if anybody wants to trade that for a night of fabulous partying at Oregon Public For you and 299 of your friends. Of your closest friends. I wonder if Zoya might have something like that in the lending library. You know, we do have tables and chairs and we are also looking for projectors and av equipment so if you want to put that out there <laughs> okay good well what we'll do is we have already created a blog post about this show and so what we'll do is add to that not only the podcast of our recording today but we will also put those kinds of things that you guys are looking for and what you're willing to trade does that sound good that sounds great all right thank you i want to just thank everybody who's been with us today zoya kumar Rick Reynolds, Stephen Green, and thanks so much for being with me as a co-host, Perry Gruber. My pleasure.